Welcome to Pregame.com's How to Handicap the NBA Playoffs, an episode in our How to Handicap podcast series. I'm your host, RJ Bell, and I'm joined by Marco D'Angelo, bringing 29 years of handicapping expertise to the table, Vegas runner, a genuine professional batter who lives on his winnings, and Stephen Nover, a sports betting journalist whose basketball specialty is the NBA. As you guys know, the How to Handicap series is when we talk about concepts, general concepts for a specific time of the year that you can apply not only this year, but any year and have a good chance of beating the man. Okay, I'm going to jump straight to Steven. We're lucky to have Steven with us today. Truly an NBA expert. He's a uh, pregame.com pro. And um, Steven, just broad strokes. When you look at the NBA playoffs, what's your focus? Entirely different animal, RJ, than the regular season. I I think the the NBA playoffs are the most pure form of handicapping of any of the sports because it's basically just you against the odds maker. There's none of these situational elements that come up so frequently in the in the in the NBA. You don't have to worry about the the Nets being in the fourth game of a six-game West Coast trip and if they're going to show up or not. All these games are obviously important. They're all keys. You're going to get these teams uh should get their best efforts uh, and it just comes down to you against the odds maker. You're watching the game, he's watching the game. And I just think it's a real true test of uh of handicapping ability. Okay, so let's go around the horn with just some general thoughts, and then uh, we have a number of subjects we'll be uh, diving into very deeply. Okay, Vegas Runner. Well, as a professional better, I always look forward to the NBA playoffs because, number one, they're more like the bowl games or March Madness tournament because you're going to get a lot of big influx of public money. Um, The Bets are coming in a lot more from your average, your casual better who uh, wants to watch the game, have some action on it. So the lines are geared more towards the public than they are towards the pro bettors. So I think that gives guys like us who wager every day a much bigger edge, even though you would think this time of the year the lines will be sharper. Okay, so question is, would you say that public money concept is applicable in the early rounds in all rounds, or does it increase as we move towards the finals? I think it early right away because people are excited about the playoffs. It's so marketed. It's so commercialized that right away you want to get down on that first TNT game. So early on, I think there's a big, you know, it plays a big um, role in, in what the lines are going to be. And then late as well because in the finals is when everybody wants to get involved. Everybody has a team they're cheering for. But would we agree, guys, relative to, let's say, March Madness and, and even more so, so relative to the Super Bowl, uh, the NBA playoffs is not a public event. It's public relative to NBA regular season. You're going to get more people are going to step in, RJ, and play in the playoffs just because of the added TV coverage. 
Uh, the NBA right now, you, in regular season, you got the TNT games and the ESPN games, and then you got to wait to the weekend to get ABC on Sundays. You got TV coverage on every single playoff game, so it gets interest involved. And they do a great marketing campaign with Winner Go Home, and uh, they hype these guys up. And when you get to the later rounds and you get the marquee matchups, I mean, the NBA, unlike any other sport, maybe even more so than football, they really advertise the marquee players better in NBA than any other sport, I feel. And people like, you know, the big names, Kobe, Shaq, um, LeBron, those are draws, and people like to watch those matchups. Okay, so, and maybe I'm just not hearing it, is do we agree, we'll do across the board, do we agree with the following statement? The NBA playoffs is more public than NBA regular season, but much less public than March Madness. Marco, yes or no? Yes, absolutely. Steven? I, I would go with that because during the regular season, there's a lot of competition. You have college basketball going on in the, the first couple months. Uh, actually, the first three months of the season, you have NFL going on. So, you know, who's going to watch, uh, you know, the Memphis Grizzlies on the weekend? And uh, But now, uh, as Marco says, and, and he points out, he didn't even name the last names of these players. Everybody knows who LeBron is. Everybody knows who Kobe is. Uh, these guys have become like myth-like, god-like status, and uh, it's going to draw viewership. So I, I would definitely agree with that statement. Vegas Runner? Absolutely. Okay. All right, so Marco, give us uh, your big-picture thoughts, and then we'll start digging into some specific details. Well, the NBA playoffs, to me, probably are my favorite playoffs of all because it is the purest handicapping that you have. You have a situation where you can be handicapping the same two teams – with the basic same variables for seven games in a row. Now, you could say, well, you have that in baseball playoffs as well. But no, you don't. Because in baseball, there's one key element that changes every game, and that's the starting pitcher. In basketball, you got the same five guys walking out the center court for that opening tip for seven games in a row. So a handicapper that can read how the situation's going, make the adjustments from game to game, you're going to do very well, and, and it's my favorite uh, playoff sport to handicap. Now, your general handicapping approach is you love to look at prior matchups interseason with the same teams. Right. Now because you can, you can read off of how those games went, and especially if it was a deceiving result. Absolutely. In, in the playoffs, you're going to have more public money, as we said, and public perception. They watch a game, and they hear the announcers talking one way on a game, and it just locks them in, and especially if you get a blowout in a game. So your comment leads to our first major category, which is because of the nature of the seven-game series that it's so different than the regular season. One of the main ways it's different, and then I can throw this open to discussion, and we'll start with Steven, is the adjustment factor is between game one and game seven potentially is the ability for a coach and a team to adjust seems to be key. How do you look at that, Stephen? I think it's uh, really important to, to watch these games. Sometimes during the season you can get away with just you know looking at box scores. Preferably you should be watching all the games if you're serious about this, but it's especially important to watch the, these playoff games because you have to, in order to, to win at this, in order to beat the odds maker, uh, you have to 
pick up certain uh, kind of intangible things. You just can't look at a team's shooting percentage and say, well, geez, uh, they shot 46 percent. Uh, or they shot 50%, or they shot way below average, 41%. Why did they do that? Was this great defense? Were they missing shots? Were they able to adjust? Was it certain zone defenses that that caught them off guard? How was their um, weak side defense? Uh, How are they fronting uh, the the centers? And a lot of things go into this. You need to watch this, and you need to know what's going on. Okay, so Marco. The key thing that Steven said there is about watching the games. And one of the things that you have in in the playoffs from game to game is you're going to have, obviously, the point spread winner. But more importantly, totals become a big factor in the NBA playoffs. And people will look at the games. And so, so when you say totals, you mean the over and under? The over and under. And by watching the games, you see how the tempo went in the game. A lot of times a game will be right on pace to be an over or an under. You know, you're following it through the game, and you're going to say this is going to fall within three points of the total. And then the complexion of the game changes. If a team in the fourth quarter opens the lead to seven, nine points, now it becomes a faster-paced game where they got to put up shots and score. If it's a tight game down the stretch, they're maximizing each possession and you're taking the full 24 seconds off the shot clock, and that can dictate your totals. So you have to know how the ebb and flow of the game went, and that's how you make your adjustments into the second and third games in the series. Okay, so that seems to be uh, you're giving us a category of games that's going to lend itself to a deceiving outcome, which you then, someone who doesn't watch the game, as Steven said, says, oh, that went over by 15 points. When in truth, if it had been a different complexion at the end of the game, it might have went under. Absolutely. All right, so Vegas Shriner, specifically with the idea of it being a seven-game series, how does that affect your handicapping, and how does it affect the profile of the teams that do well over the course of the series? For example, clearly, and, and my theory here is coaching, is when you watch the old 80s series uh, the Celtics versus the Lakers, et cetera, et cetera, and even into the uh, Phil Jackson and the Bulls in the 90s, there were, those Bulls teams would lose a lot of games. Yeah, the one year they didn't, but, I mean, typically even the best teams are going to lose. You know, there's a famous Moses Malone. They asked him the prediction. 4-4-4. Four, four, four. Yeah, he said, <laughs> how's the playoffs going to go? 4-4-4, four, four, and four, yeah. <laughs> and uh, But that doesn't happen very often, and uh, – to me, it's coaching. If you can know you're going to lose some of these games and when to put the energy in and when not to get nervous and et cetera, et cetera, coaching experience seems to really matter. What's your theory on the seven-game series? I have to agree, too. When you, when you break down the NBA playoffs, coaching is key. Experience is key. This is a whole new ball game. Player, player experience and coaching. Experience. Both, yeah, the player and the coach because you're exposed to a whole new style of basketball. Sure, they play every night during the regular season as well, but the intensity is just so different in the playoffs. Every possession counts, unlike the regular season. So uh, coaching is key. Playoff experience for both the players and the coaches is key. But the one thing that I wanted to add is you got to be able to keep the playoffs simple as well you got to be able to pick the winners. More times than not, just like with the NFL, we're told, pick the winner, you'll cover the spread. It's like that in the NBA playoffs as well. Teams that win the series cover more games than they don't. Teams that cover the game win the game more times than not. 
So it's it's one of them situations where you got to go in every day looking at who's going to win the game in a seven-game series, not just who's going to cover that particular game. I'd be careful, VR, with that in these first-round first, uh, first round series especially, cause, especially because in, in the first round you know that the odds makers are going to inflate the favorites. So I think what you're saying may hold up better in, in the latter rounds. Uh, but the, the first, uh, first through series, you always get these mismatches. And believe me, you're, you're not going to get value on the favorites. So you, you, may, you have to be careful somewhat. So, Stephen, why uh, – sorry to jump in, Vegas Runner – is why first-round favorites more inflated? You have uh, – usually in the NBA there's disparities between the teams with the best records and, and the bottom guys that just are happy to be in the playoffs. And they may come in with the attitude, oh, we have nothing to lose, we'll play loose. Well, you know, it's fine, but their chances are usually very good. They're not very good. They're like the number eight seed, and they're just not in the class of this. And uh, uh, the odds maker is weighing public money, as we talked about. There's going to be more public money in a playoff game than there is in a regular season game, and the public tends to uh, play favorites and, and, the name, and play the superstars. I think that's a good answer. Is Specifically, you're saying the bigger mismatches are happening in the first round, and thus the public, the contrast between the marquee teams and the have-nots is, is bigger. That makes a ton of sense. One other thing, RJ, in the first round that's different than the other rounds in the playoffs is the NBA, for whatever godforsaken reason, the first-round playoffs, they spread the first round out way too much. They don't play like every other day because there's eight sets of games. The team will play their first game uh, on a Saturday or Sunday, and they may not play their second game until uh, Wednesday. They spread it out, and if teams go up 3-0 and some of the other series are at 2-1, sometimes a coach may just coast in that fourth game because they don't want their team sitting around for a week and getting stale when they move to the next round when they're going to be playing a tougher team. You know, one of the nice things about, uh, you know, being the CEO of pregame.com is I have all these experts here to ask questions to. I can remember, you know, growing up in Ohio and be thinking about handicapping and it it was even pre-internet and there was no way to interact with anyone that knew a lot more than me. So it's kind of fun as a question occurs to me during this podcast to, uh, <laughs> to, to be able to ask it. So I'm going to ask this, and whoever wants to jump in can. So we talked about the length of the series. We talk about that there's adjustments and transitions during the series. What happens more? A series starts a certain way, and by the end of it, it's the same way. Or the series starts as a certain way, there's an adjustment made, and it changes the complexion of the series. And then I guess the third option is there's more than one adjustment. So is there is the series one type of series, two types of series, or even more? How often do each of these scenarios happen, do you think? I think it has to it, it you have to look at the teams that are involved. I mean, some teams you just know it's going to be a defensive series the whole way, and you end up seeing uh, a lot of series go all five games will stay under the total. And the lines maker will adjust, and he'll drop and drop and drop the number. So but- jumping in, I'm, I'm specifically not talking about 
is the outcome going to be the same? You know, the favorite's going to win or the dog's going to win or team A or team B or over under. I'm saying something happens where they switch a guarding, you know, that the, the, the swing man on one team was being guarded by this guy, but then they switched it up and it changes the whole complexion of the series. How many times does that happen in a series? I, I think with, with with the better teams, when we start getting deeper into the series, then you see more adjustments. Again, harping back to the first round, when you have these tremendous mismatches, uh, the inferior team, there's only so much they can do. There's only so much adjustments you can make when you're when you're against a much superior opponent. But as the series progressed, the second round, the third round, the uh, semifinals championship, you'll see a lot of adjustments. It, it becomes a real ping-pong match between the coaches. I think what happens during a series, RJ, is you might have one player that steps up in one game and has a monster game, you know, in hitting big from outside. You know, he might knock down five or six three-pointers in a game. And then the coaches have to adjust to that guy in the next game. That's where you see the, the bigger type uh, changes. And there's always, you know, there always seems to be one superstar that will rise to the occasion. But more often than not in these series is, it's not necessarily the superstar because the superstar is going to get all the attention in the double teams. It's that second or third scorer on the team that steps up and, and has maybe a 10-point over his average game, and then they got to adjust that you don't leave that guy open. Now, this is something I've never understood. Is It seems to me you hear two things about the NBA playoffs. One is... You know, since the early 80s, there's been only one or two teams that haven't had a Hall of Fame or at the helm. That, that you need that one player, the Michael Jordan or whatever, the Magic Johnson, the Larry Bird, in order to get all the way to the promised land. But then what Marco said is something you hear a lot too, which is they're always able to take away that first player and thus the second player, the Scottie Pippen in this case, the James Worthy, makes the difference which one is it it changes from you know game team to team series to series there's not that many superstars over the years that can carry a whole team but but those are the teams that's won well you, they have but you know how long did it take before you know chicago went on their run it's not saying every superstar is going to win every year that's impossible but the old stat is Okay, is if you say it's Kobe, it's it's Duncan. It, I mean, you can you can probably name only six or seven players and have ninety percent of the title since nineteen seventy nine. Right, but you know, with Kobe, which is a good example, he couldn't win it without Shaq. You know, you can say the same with Shaq. You know, he Shaq couldn't win it without Kobe. Then he won with uh, Dwayne Wade. You need that number two guy. Jordan had Pippen. You know, Pippen wasn't, you know, the, the number two guy is always going to be the forgotten guy, yeah. you know, Stockton and Malone. I mean, they, they had the great teams there. They didn't, you know, they weren't to the promised land, but they were a one-two combination. Historically, it takes a superstar, but a superstar getting help. I mean, I go all the way back to the 60s when I would watch the, the great Celtics dynasty, and, and Bill Russell was the dominant guy, but he had help. Uh, when the Celtics won, you had Larry Bird. He had help. Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, uh, Michael Jordan. He Until Scottie Pippen started uh, stepping up, that's when Jordan started winning. So, I mean, there are some rare exceptions. The, the Pistons, when they were in their dominant stage, they didn't really have 
true superstars, but most of the time it's a superstar getting help from very good role players and, and very good secondary players. That's the perfect example, the Detroit Pistons. I mean, you had Isaiah Thomas, but, you know, they had Rodman for, you know, he had a purpose and had a role. You know, I mean, he was, wasn't was a great offensive player, but he cleaned the glass for them and got them the garbage points that they needed off the misses. All right, so, so what I'm hearing is this, is you need to win it. You need both. The prototypical team that's going to win it, you need one Hall of Famer, and you need the second guy to be very, very good. And the Hall of Famer without the second guy is not going to win it. And uh, a lot of second guys without a Hall of Famer is probably not going to win it. Let me give you a great example, RJ. Uh, I was fortunate to see Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who went by the name of Lou Alcindor back in his first couple years in, in Milwaukee when I lived in Wisconsin. This guy, his first couple years in the league was just so great. Maybe the greatest all-around center of all time. You could make that argument if you would have seen him. He couldn't quite win it, even though he was the best player by far in the NBA because he did not have a good supporting cast. Well, the, the Bucks in just their third year of existence, they got Oscar Robertson, and he was still very good on the downside of his career, but still very good. But the combination of those two were just enough to push the Bucks over the top, and they won the championship in just their third year of existence. Okay, so, you know, to be honest, as, as a listener here, and, and we have a wealth of knowledge, that makes sense to me, and, and I like having a tangible takeaway. You know, the idea, you need the Hall of Famer, you need the almost Hall of Famer, at least, and, and I think history shows that. Now, real quick, let's touch on the first round specifically. I had two thoughts entering our uh, podcast today. One is that teams can fall into two categories. I guess it's both thoughts, two possible categories. One is early in the first round series, there's teams that are burnt out from the stress and intensity of the playoff race, either to get into the playoffs or if they're fighting for the number one seed or the second seed, a very tangible goal the last week or so that every game they're thinking about, that there seems to be a tendency, even if they get there or don't get there, the first game or two, they're sluggish because of the intensity leading up to the playoffs. Any thoughts on that concept? I don't think it's as big as you might think there because the way the playoffs are set up in the NBA, almost everybody makes the playoffs. Everybody's jockeying for a position. It's not like there's only a couple teams. Now, you can have it at the top where there's a little more pressure because in each year, generally, I found that there's really only three or four teams that have a legitimate chance to win the NBA championship. And those three or four teams down the stretch may be jockeying for that home court throughout the playoffs which everybody thinks is the magical key because we've seen the statistics over the years that if a series goes to game seven the home team has such a you know dominating advantage in game seven historically it's different than the nfl and baseball where you can come up with a surprising outcome like the rays can win a baseball championship and the 99 rams can come out of nowhere and win a super bowl it does not work historically that way in the nba teams have to pay their dues they just can't get in as a as a a, a real uh, number eight number seven number six seed and pull off some miracle just doesn't work that way in the nba with a, a seven game series my comment would be that jockeying for position is very different at, at three different levels. One is four and five, because that's going to dictate home court in the first round. Number two, as you mentioned, Marco, is the number one seed. 
uh, both in conference and in the NBA that sometimes in, across the league is an issue because if you are one of the best teams, most likely you're playing the second best team because, as Steven said, things seem to follow form in the NBA a little bit more. And thus, 4-3 at home is a huge advantage. And lastly would be the eighth seed is if you're going to get in or not is a fight. So now if you're going to be two or three, I, you know, I, I'm not sure the intensity there is the same. Um, but, but, but I think that's a point well taken is most teams are jockeying uh, to some degree, which leads to the second result, which is sometimes there's a team whose position is locked. It might be first. It might be a number one seed. It might be wherever, but it's locked. And the last week or so, you can see some very deceiving results. And the public, who is maybe just looking at the newspaper, is seeing this team's entering the playoffs losing 6 of 10. And in truth, none of those games have really mattered to them. And thus, these teams that didn't have to fight hard at the end, sometimes their stats are a little bit deceiving, and then come the playoffs, their motivation is back to where it should be. Is there any value playing on those teams because of the deception of the late season? I say absolutely, and I think basketball and baseball are the two sports that you have to approach that way because it's such a long season that a lot of these teams have clinched earlier. Every game isn't as important as in the NFL where you're playing 16 games and you don't want to go into the playoffs playing bad the final three because that's 25% of your schedule that you've played terribly for. But in the NBA, when you're playing 82 games and just down the final seven or eight you happen to take off, that's a small percentage of your your games for the year so i think you 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 do you will gain an advantage because there will be you know people will jump to conclusions and say this team is cooling off at the wrong time and they're the teams that are going to be the highest fate you know the favorites going in because they are the superior team they did clinch earlier than everyone else I, I, go ahead steve no go ahead Michael. i don't i agree with what you're saying vr but i don't think that it's as big as it used to be again as we've said numerous times in various podcasts the public's a lot smarter now than they used to be they know the lineups you know now i mean people can go on the internet and see the lineups five minutes before the game starts you know you follow the box scores much more readily and you know when the marquee players have been being sat down and they know that they went through the motions. I find that that veteran teams that maybe coast to the finish line or uh, aren't peaking towards the end, uh, I, I would kind of treat that with a grain of salt. They they know what to do. They've been there before. They know how to step it up. Where maybe a young up and down team that hasn't had the maturity level may have some talent, but doesn't quite have the maturity level. If they go on a cold streak into the playoffs, that that could have some meaning. Okay, so that's a very interesting point, is you're saying that there might be a consequence of that late-season slide, and the consequence is more likely to be um, felt by an immature team than, than a mature team. That's a very good point, and a uh, uh, very impressive point. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to shift gears and move to the second half of the podcast. Now, one of the things we're excited about here a little bit is we've actually added some, uh, as you heard coming in, uh, some intro music. And then uh, we're also going to have a few effects and fun things we'll talk about. So we're going to sample. This is the first effect in the history of uh, pregame podcast. And this is a basketball one. So check this out. Oh, (laughs) 
All right. Now, in case anyone gets out, so you guys know. Oh, wait. That was an accident. Okay. All right. In case anyone gets out of hand, you guys know someone's in control here. And if anyone does, this is what they're going to get. Shut up, boo. <laughs> All right. So now we've set the ground rules. Okay. Moving on. Let's talk zigzag theory. Now, I would say this is the theory that of all sports betting, basketball, NBA, or anything, which caught wildfire and, be- and went from being almost unknown in, in the early, you know, around 2000 or whatever, um, and I can't remember the exact year, and then literally one year went by and everyone was talking about it. And I think the internet, as Marco said, had something to do with that. Once something happens... And there's some stats behind it. It can blow up a lot more. Um, and what we found out with the zigzag, well, first of all, describe the zigzag. Who wants to jump in? The zigzag concept is very simple, is that you're going to take the loser of the previous game and go with them and believing that they're going to bounce back, make the adjustments necessary. Because of what you said, and, and there was one year in the playoffs that it had just an ex- extraordinary run it was almost like gold that year and everybody was talking about it the zigzag the flip-flop there was all kinds of names floating around and vegas like anything once something happens hasn't worked since they make they make adjustments (laughs) and what you know it still works to a degree but now you got to pick and choose your spots and just look at the lines normally in a given year if team a was minus seven points and they win by 12 the next time they play which is going to be Game two, the line's going to go up. Since the zigzag theory, the line doesn't go up anymore. You almost pay a penalty for losing the game. You're getting either the same number or less points in the next game. And that's because of what happened with the zigzag. Okay, so a couple things discussed there. One is, so to, to more plainly define the zigzag, is that due to motivation that the team that loses the game is in theory more motivated the next game and thus performs better and thus zigging and zagging throughout the series. What Marco mentions is because it did become so prevalent and the results that year were so skewed to favor it that the lines literally were adjusted to the degree that it, it was eye-popping is, is the team that won would have been a seven-point favorite and they're home the next time and they're a four-point favorite. I mean, like literally that kind of adjustment And from what I've seen of the data is it's taken away all of the edge of the zigzag. If not, some of the smart guys I know look to go against the zigzag in certain spots. So, Stephen, what's your thoughts on the zigzag? Well, zigzag, uh, don't be intimidated by it. It's just a fancy name for revenge. And um, I believe it was the gold sheet that coined the zigzag. I'm, I'm not sure of that, but I think it was them. It was a great, great term for that, but it's become very a cliche now, and it worked a long time ago, and um, we're out of the Stone Age. And um, Do you look to fade it? Usually, I think the goal, the zigzag uh, comes most into play in Game 3. Let's say the, the first two games, the home team jumps up 2-0. Now you're really looking at the zigzag where the road team down 2-0 playing at home must, absolutely must win this game three. So that's where the zigzag is going to tax you the most. The odds makers know that, and they're really going to put a tax because they know everybody wants to be on that team down 0-2 in game three back at home. Vegas runner. I agree totally with Steve that 
absolutely. The zigzag theory has gotten now to a point where it's so widespread that the, even the odds makers have to defend against it by inflating these numbers when it, it, it falls into that category of a zigzag game. I think where you can use it, because obviously there are spots to use in it. It's not a system where it only hits 30% last year, let's say, but it's just not as profitable as it used to be. I think you need to pick your spots and you need to pick your teams. Every year it seems that there are certain teams that fall under that zigzag theory that just do happen to bounce back when they lose. And I think you could you could pick up them trends. That's what that's how I've been able to use the zigzag theory. And I found where teams have, have been able to go five and one, six and one doing that for me throughout the playoff series. But again, you have to pick your spots with it or like we were saying with Steve earlier, look to fade it in certain situations that you know the lines inflate it just because of the theory. There's uh there's been some evolution to this. Now let's uh, talk about the zigzag theory where a team, the home team wins the first two games. Now we go uh, to the team down 0-2. Now they're at home, must-win situation, zigzag theory in full force. If you want that team down 0-2, you're going to have to pay the price. You're probably going to have to lay a couple points more than what you normally might think or might be fair. Now, if they lose that game, they're down 0-3, and the zigzag theory has evolved to the point where the team down 0-3, you want to... Fade them. You want to take the team up 3-0 because in today's NBA, with today's moronic athlete in the NBA, they're giving up. They want to go golfing. They know they cannot come down. They cannot come back from down 0-3. They're going to give up in game four. And the team up 3-0, they want the rest. They're going to go all out to win that fourth game since they won that third game. Now, I think the odds maker is aware of this, so this is the next evolution to the zigzag theory. That game is going to be taxed the other way, just the opposite of game three. And when you say tax, we're saying T-A-X, as in there's a premium or surcharge yes. put on because of the Line situation. inflation for the, probably the team you want. Okay, not to be devil's advocate, but I love doing that. Oh, wait, I got a sound effect for that. You ready? You want to rumble? <laughs> okay, well, me and Steven's going to rumble. I agree with you there to a degree, but again, I never like to put blanket statements out there. I always like to break everything down, and I think there's two categories. I think if you have a veteran team, they don't want to be embarrassed by being swept. They're going to come to play in that fourth game to save face and know that it's not impossible. I think a young team is more apt to throw in the towel down 3-0, knowing, hey, we're young, we had a good season, we're not quite there yet, yeah, this season's over, let's go golfing. But a veteran team that finds himself down 3-0, they're coming to play. You might want to play that let's rumble again because um, <laughs> – You want to rumble? Because I, I would disagree with that to a point, Marco. I don't care if it's a veteran team, I don't care how many years of experience. Down 0-3, how many times has it happened in the NBA where a team has won a series down – you know, three love, maybe once, if ever. They don't, but how many times do you It's actually... been none for three, oh, right? It, it, the, uh... Never. No. Yeah, never. So they, they know. They and... know, but, they're, but how many of them get swept? I mean, you're, you're more, so... more than not get swept. The trend is the sweep has happened. The last like five years, more teams have gotten swept down three nothing that have come back in one game four. Marco, these athletes are entrepreneurs. You know, they got to go to their businesses. They don't want to spend any more time on the court. You know, it's. Uh... I, I think Marco has a point, but I think the overriding point might be so powerful it doesn't matter. Marco's point is the athlete with some pride, the veteran, is going to ha- is give up less, less likely to give up. 
But I think the power of that disappointment of that Game 3 loss, because think about it, especially if you're home for Game 3, and, and it's different. If you lose your first two home games, it's different. But if you're home for Game 3, you're in that series if you win Game 3. By losing that, the disappointment level is massive, I think. We're not talking about the favorite here, Marco. We're talking about the dog. Because uh, they've lost their first two on the road, and now they've lost this must-win situation at home for Game 3. So they are the underdog to start with. They aren't the more talented team. Chances are they don't have the, the great superstar veteran, or if they do, he's not surrounded with enough talent to overcome that. Okay, so here's, to me, another little consideration with the zigzag. The game that was the loss, what was the complexion of that game? Was it a very tight, heartbreaking loss? Or was it a blowout? And to me, that makes a difference. Because to me, I like to actually go with the zigzag more if the loss was a blowout. Because one, as we talk about pretty much every podcast, the public sees that result. Oh my God, that team won by 25. They're much better. One. So the line, whatever adjustment the lines maker's making for the zigzag and going towards the losing team, it's a little bit less than it would have been. And number two... The team is not upset or angsty or wondering about what could have been. They're focused on, we better change what we're doing or we're going to get run out of the building. So I think a general concept is, if there's a blowout, be more inclined to go with the zigzag on the team that lost. If it's a close, heartbreaking game, look to fade it. Agree, disagree? A lot of it's timing, and Marco made a real good point earlier in the podcast about because of what TV has so taken over the scheduling that these teams may not play again for four or five days. So if a team gets loses a heartbreaker and they have to play the next night or even the night after that, chances are they may not be able to, to rise to the occasion. But if they have five days to get over that, that may change the whole complex. With what you just said, RJ, the key factor, and uh, Stephen said it earlier, the zigzag is a fancy name for revenge. And one of the reasons in all sports that revenge is such a powerful tool is the obvious of you know, pride and everything. But when you stop to think about it, if you're the team that won by 25 points and you're the coach of that team and you're on your off day, what do you do? What do you change? You, you don't change your game plan. Everything worked to perfection. If you're the team that lost, you're going to the whiteboard and you're drawing up a whole new game plan and you're making adjustments and changes and your opponent doesn't know what you're going to come out and do. You're, you're making changes. So you have the advantage by changing your game plan and that's one of the reasons that revenge is a powerful tool in all sports. But Again, there will be those examples where one team is just that much better than another. You'll always have that. Okay, good stuff, good stuff. All right, now, here's one of my pet theories. Second game, remember, you have uh, the finals are different, right? It's usually 2-2, two, 1-1, two, one, one, and 1, and then the finals is 2-3-2, uh, two, two, right? So either way, though, there's going to be, you go to a site, and then there's a first game, and then there's a second game at the site. I like the road team in the second game at the site much more than the first game at the site, especially in the first two games of the entire series because you have two advantages in that second game. One, there was no travel. You played game one. You went back to your hotel. The day or two went by. It's not the same as being at home, agreed, but there's no travel. 
And number two, you're more familiar with the arena. And again, you've played there earlier in the year and all that stuff. You just, but you're playing a second game in the exact same place. And uh, I think that comfort level and the no travel makes it where if you're looking to back road teams, there's a slight one or two point advantage to the second game. Any thoughts? You'll usually get a line edge, too, because... But how much of that is zigzag, too? Because it would fall, if you think about it, it would fall right into the zigzag, right? If the team home team won the first game, now, in theory, if the line was eight, you'll see that second line usually be six and a half or something, right, in game two. Mm, Well, again, there's variables. Let's say it's a public team. Let's say, uh, what's the most public team out there? The Lakers, uh, the Celtics... If the if the line let's say is six in the opening game and they win by nine or ten, uh, it's going to be more than six, I'd imagine, for that second game. So if you like that game too, you're actually going to get maybe a point or two more in the second game. Now I've always found, and and uh, again, there are no generalizations that apply all the time. But I've always found that because of the zigzag, is if the home team wins game number one, unless there was an extreme result, usually that line's a little bit less in game two. What, what, what have you guys seen? That's correct in the zigzag. That's what we're talking about, that they take the value away from you because they expect the public to come in on that second game. I think where the value is for the road team in game two is actually when the home team loses game one because then you're going to get more points because you're going to they're going to make you pay the premium to back the home team because basically o two at home is the same as o three you know almost I mean not many teams come back from o two and go out on the road. There's an interesting point that came up here. The zigzag is not typically only if a team lost. It's not team A wins. Is supposed to win the first game, team B the second game. It's when does a team need to win? So, so I think there is a little bit of a tendency, but to think that in the second game, the team that lost the first one, especially the road team, has a little bit better chance or a little bit more motivated. But you really see the adjustments, as Steven said earlier, is when a team's down 2-0 or 0-2 and, and they're at home now. Now it's a must-win game. And you'll see the zigzag even more in game two if the home team loses because now it feels like a must-win game. So I think a better way to define the zigzag is whenever you see a must, a team that if they lose, they're pretty much out of it. That's when you pay the biggest premium. And to me, Marco, you bring up a great situation. I love it when the home team loses game one, the zigzag's in full effect, and you've got a more comfortable row team because of the second game factors we talked about getting a premium because of the zigzag. Right, and because of the success of the zigzag, I'll take it one step further where I like a situation in the second game is when the home team wins game one, but they don't cover. The line might be seven, and they only win by three. Well, because of the popularity of the zigzag, the people are going to look to the dog. You're going to get that home favorite as a smaller home favorite in game two because the public's going to say, hey, the road team almost won game one. They're going to even the series. I'll come back with the home team off of a tight win in game two. That is an absolute automatic for me 100% of the time if they win and don't cover game one. And most likely you have the public looking at that close game, which affects the line, and that team itself is not going to be complacent most likely because they just got lucky to win. Absolutely. 
Okay, now, here's a theory just to throw at you guys. Vegas Schreiner, I'd like you to jump in with this one. Just uh, And we haven't discussed this. Home court has less value in the playoffs because the referees who are chosen to ref the playoff games are considered the best referees. And one of the main values of home court in the NBA is the refs having a biased calling tendency for the home team because of the home crowd affecting them. But the better refs are less affected, and thus home court means less. I can't agree with that. I really think when it comes to the playoffs, the home teams just do better straight up and against the spread. That's what history dictates. Um, I, I, it totally makes sense as far as the referees, especially now in the NBA, they have so much pressure on them uh, when they make calls uh, not to look biased. So I understand that point, and, and it makes a lot of sense. But I've just seen that teams especially you know, are returning home off a loss. Home court is just such a huge edge in the NBA playoffs. I think it can't be overlooked. I put more value than any other time when when a team's playing home i agree with vr i think that the playoffs the the home crowds in the playoff now i know in football you got you know 50 60 thousand people where in a basketball arena you know you might have eighteen thousand in a in a really large arena they are wild at basketball games and because of the frequency of scoring you're always on an up note you can be watching a football game and you can go almost an entire quarter and it sounds like the stadium's dead because, you know, there's no scoring. It's a defensive game. But you're in the NBA, and somebody makes a spectacular dunk, and the arena just erupts. At the beginning of the game, the intros, just look at the, the, the playoffs in the NBA. I'm sitting at it's home. Like a parade. Would, you know, if I don't make it home in time to start a game, I'll set my TiVo up to do the introductions because of the way they get the crowd going, the way they you know introduce them and they play their things. I mean, the Chicago Bulls during their run, everybody knows the theme music that they had for that. I actually had it as a ringtone on my phone for <laughs> three years. Well, okay, so, um, Stephen, uh, is there any, and again, what I try to do is, is keep up on the, the, the most cutting-edge theories, and this is one that struck me as potentially valid. We have two people not hearing it uh, or not seeing any real value with it. What's your thoughts? Well, with home court, if you've got a mega superstar, a LeBron, a Kobe, it's a given. They're going to get the calls at home. If there's like a, a call where they charge into the defender, was he set? It could go either way. It'd be an investigation if the superstar did not get the call at home. They they have to give the superstar the call at home. They've earned that right, and so yes, I, I think there is a the home court advantage is uh, racked up a notch during the playoffs. Okay, so that theory mm. goes down the tank. Let me see here. Do we have any sounds for that? Nope. Okay. Oh, uh, <laughs> I gotta that get was a, convenient. We got to get a flush there. Got to get a flush. Okay. My last thought, and you guys can be thinking about: Is there anything we haven't touched on? Is the very fact that playoffs are a repeatable schedule of games. One of the things I like about March Madness is it's 64 teams, not counting the play-in, and every year there's 32 first-round games and 16 second-round. And you can look back now over 25 years of the modern year of the tournament and see so much. Well, if you think about it, the only change in the NBA playoffs for quite a while has been the first round went from five to seven games. But when you look at just seven-game series, there's a wealth of, of data in history about how do teams do down 0-2? How do teams do down 0-3, as you guys had a long conversation about? And 
to me, if you're a database guy, and I know one guy here in town especially, he has every scenario profiled, ATS and straight up, and he knows when teams do well and when teams don't, and I think there's a real opportunity to do that type of analysis. Any thoughts on that? I'm one that follows that all the time, and I, a lot of my analysis in the past on pregame had to do with that exact, um, what, what you're talking about right now. You have to look at that historical data because the best thing you could ask for as a sports better is to get your money in when you're getting the best of it. And when you have data that shows you win in this spot 70% of the time, you're getting your money in with the best of it. So that's something that can't be overlooked because what you have to remember, we've been talking now for a while, but a lot of the things we're covering are just theories. And to win money, you need fact. You need you know actual data. Well, and what we like to do is the theories act as the container to turn into data eventually. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then you plug in each season that goes by, you take the theories and plug them in and then you take a minute and reevaluate your theories every year because things do change. Exactly. And that's why I think what you're saying is extremely valid because we do have already that data set aside for us. What does a team do down three games to one when they're playing that game five at home? And you look and a lot of times you'll see a team in that spot might win 80% of the time straight up. You turn that into a money line and all of a sudden you could find value, you know, in a, in a particular game. Okay. Now, before we close, what have we missed? I have a theory that we, nobody has talked about at all. It, it's one of my favorite scenarios here. We're talking about in-series handicapping, and we're forgetting one thing, moving from one series to another. And you can get tremendous value if you understand ebb and flow and tempos of teams. There's always one team that historically during the course of the season gives another team fits. And it's because of their style. They have the perfect style to cause problems for a team. So you might have a, a good team play a seven-game series where they struggled the entire series. Maybe they only won by four or five points. And it looks like they're not playing well. But it's because they're playing their opponent that has the perfect style for them. They manage to get by that team. And then they move to the next round. But the team they're playing is an up-tempo team like them. It's strength against strength. And now you see the disparity of the team that just struggled, struggled against a team that had the perfect thing. Now they're playing a team that wants to play their style, and they blow them out. I've gotten great value moving from a series to the next one in game one where the public perception dictates the line. What are you talking about, Willis? Oh, that was an accident. I was actually trying to hit this. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Now that was good. So let's think about what you just said. Is What you said was that there can be deceiving games within a series, but because of matchups, there can be deceiving series results, and specifically a team can look worse as a winner than maybe they should have because of the matchup. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, Marco, and especially you can take look at that at totals. Let's say if a team opens up against a half-court team, their total is going to be lower they go into the next series against an up-tempo team. Perhaps the odds maker isn't quite there with the total. You might be getting some value that way. But also what Marco said could be applicable to the, the first uh, round series. Remember a couple years ago when Golden State upset Dallas. Dallas just could not match up against that one particular team. Dallas had a great team that year, but that was their one 
bad opponent for them, and that's who they matched up against. The results, stunning upset. But imagine if they could have, and I think Marco's point would be, if they could have slipped by in that series, they would have looked beaten up. It might have went to seven games or whatever, and and then they would have been a much better team than it seemed because of that matchup. True, there, there's value that way, but uh, this was like a huge series price on, on this. If you would have taken Golden State, it's you know it's easy to say now, but and it usually they don't usually can't quite win a series they usually can maybe take it to six or seven games but but often you know sometimes something like that can come can come up now the flip side is a team can look much better than they're supposed to because of a positive matchup absolutely okay Vegas runner have we forgotten anything uh the only thing I'd like to touch on and pass along is when you're going to bet this year's playoffs and every year's playoffs for that matter you can't be afraid to bet an under in the playoffs the lines are always inflated towards the over because, like we were talking about when we started the podcast, more public's going to start betting these playoffs, and people are afraid to take an under. They just feel so much more comfortable betting an over than they do betting an under. And again, the history just doesn't support that. You will cash more tickets, although you do have to pick your spots, you will cash more tickets betting the under than you will betting the over when the NBA playoffs get here. Okay. Steven, have we forgotten anything, or did we do a comprehensive overview? No, very good. And just to add to, to VR's point, um, with uh, with the over, the, the public they they root for baskets. They yeah. they want they want to see scoring. But and, you get half court offense in the playoffs a lot more. Of that you don't get that up and down tempo as much. Right. I would just say be a little careful on an under if the if the point spread range is in the pick, you know, the one or two range. Okay, so be careful the because of, overtime, yeah, of, of the potential of either overtime or the potential of there's going to be a lot of late game fouling that Marco talked about earlier if it's a close game, which will throw a game over. Now you guys just said something that triggered something, so I think we we did miss something. What is the difference? The playoffs are different, right? We know that uh, more intensity, uh, more grinded out ball typically. How do we look at regular season meetings? and convert that to the way the game's going to be played in the playoffs. Can we just look at those meetings and trust the, the results? Uh, or is there a certain type of meeting we don't trust because of the fact that now that it's the playoffs, it's not going to be the same situation? I think Stephen touched on it earlier in, in the podcast, is that everything's going to be equal now. Both teams are going to be playing on the same schedule. Whereas during the regular season meetings, you might have one team that had two days rest, but their opponent is playing a second of a back-to-back or in the third of four games. Off overtime. Yeah, there's so many different variables. In the playoffs, it's just pure true. Everything's equal. Okay, so you're saying is there can be deceiving results in the regular season because of scheduling. And let's say a team ends up being uh, uh, 3-1 and versus a certain team during the regular season. You dig a little deeper and find out two of those three wins, the team that lost had a real scheduling disadvantage. You can then think the public's going to think the team that's three and one's much better, but that was deceiving. Absolutely. And the other thing that can be deceiving is check your box scores from the regular season. A player is more likely to sit a game with a minor injury during the regular season because it's 82 games long. It's playoffs. If they can walk, they're playing. I think where you can maybe get some value from that is if the teams played uh, towards the end of the season, if they played in you know late February or March or even early April, and uh, the box scores were pretty accurate, there wasn't any w- weird fluctuation. 
But if they played back in November or December and they had new players, different players then, you can pretty much throw that out. And the amount of times they met. You know, one game, two game, don't tell you much. But some of these teams that have played three, four times during the season, if you see the same thing happen all three games, it could give you an idea of how the series may go as well. Uh, One other thing that throws a wrench into the works, and you touched briefly about looking early in the season to later in the season, a lot of times teams that are like right on the cusp in the playoff run, when the playoff trading deadline comes, you know teams will make that pull the trigger and get the, the, the trading the deadline? trading deadline and get a player that maybe earlier in the season wasn't with that team. So now, the, which is also a box score issue, right? It's a box score issue, but you you got to know your got to know your rosters and know when the trades took place. And was it the beginning too? Because there's always a learning curve when you bring a new player in, you know, to the lineup. Okay, guys, I got to tell you, this has uh, been very satisfying, and I think we've uh, taught or uh, laid out a lot of good concepts here that can be the guide for specific handicapping throughout this year's playoffs and uh, future years. So we're going to wrap it up, and we want to thank you for listening to the pregame.com's How to Handicap the NBA Playoffs. For more episodes of our How to Handicap series, plus our weekly sports betting preview show and more, visit pregamepodcast.com.